surrendering all. That's, uh, it's easier to sing that song than it is to actually surrender all aspects of our lives. You know, because it, it would be easier if the song said, I surrender some. But the, the song says, I surrender all. And when you think about all, that means every part of who you are, every decision you make, um, what school you go to, what you do with your degree, where you live, where you do life, relationships you get involved in. What would it look like to surrender all of it to the Lord? It's one of the things I love most about that song is it doesn't give us the ability to pick and choose what we get to surrender to the Lord. And that's, that's one of the things I love most about the Lord. I, I love, but it's also a hard thing is that he comes in and when, when he wants you to surrender something, he just completely just bombards it. He just busts down the door. There's no like option for you to choose what you're going to give to the Lord. If he wants it, it is, he, it is his. And I'm, I'm grateful to serve a God like that, a God that has all authority over all things, including our lives. Well, I am delighted to be gathered with you this morning, gathered today for corporate worship, worshiping our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the things I love most about Sunday mornings is it does give us the ability to be able to come together and huddle up and, and really get encouragement and refreshment. But then we are, we get back out into the community and we're scattered to do life uh, so that we are not just huddled up. But I, I'm always excited every time we get together, the people of God get together and then go back out and be salt and light. Uh, speaking of gathering, we did get in here on this past Wednesday and did our fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible study where we spent a half an hour on our knees just praying to the Lord and praying and making petitions before the Lord, exhorting the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And then we got a chance to worship together. And then we were digging in the scriptures we went through. Genesis, uh, Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant. And if, uh, if you missed it this week, this past week, we will be doing our fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible study again, as the title says, fourth Wednesday night. So we encourage you guys to come out next, uh, next month for that. It's a good time of us really just dialing in. And we've been committed to going through all of the Bible. So we are just in Genesis now, but um, Genesis 15 is where we were, but we are working our way through and it's going to take us at least two years, but uh, it is a commitment and a vow that we are going to hold to. So if you want to know more and, and engage more and have more of an intimate setting of time in the scriptures where you can actually talk as well, we will uh, we'll do that on fourth, fourth Wednesday nights. But in addition to that, just for community purposes, I want to encourage everybody in here to connect to a small group. We have four now. Um, throughout Brooklyn. And we asked you guys, if, if you guys don't know what they are, ask around. There any small group leaders in the room today? Raise your hand if you're a small group leader. You can ask around, ask these folk, but ask other people that connect to small group. Small group is extremely different than Bible study. Let me explain what I mean by that. Bible study is a time of us working through a text, but small group is time for us to really process what we learned on Sunday. So really, if you're just a Sunday saint, what happens is after a while, just hearing the word and hearing the word, we can become spiritually constipated that we never actually flesh out the word. And so on, on our fourth one, not fourth Wednesday nights, but on our small groups, it gives us the ability to be able to get into a smaller setting to where we process the word, but also build community and break bread and pray. And so I want to encourage you guys to do that. Well, we're continuing our fourth 
fourth. Why do I keep saying fourth Wednesday night? We are continuing our, um, our sermon series on discipleship, growing to look more like Jesus. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles? Meet me in Ecclesiastes. That is found between Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Old Testament book. Meet me in Ecclesiastes. We'll be in Ecclesiastes uh, 4, chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, we began our discipleship series a couple of weeks ago. It's a three-week series that we wanted to really look at what the scriptures said about discipleship, and we tried to define it, uh, the, the real, define the real goal of discipleship, and we said that the goal of discipleship is the process by which you look more and more like Jesus Christ. And so every one of us in this room, if we've trusted Jesus, that's the one thing we have in common is that we all should be on a journey of looking more like Jesus. And the discipleship process is what the Lord uses to push us. One of the things the Lord uses to push us in that sanctification process. So we started by talking about what discipleship was, like discipleship nuggets through looking at the relationship between Paul and Timothy. And then last week we got into the relationship of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament and tried to pull out what discipleship replication looks like. That means to replicate yourself. And we got to see someone in the scriptures do the exact same thing his disciple maker did, which was Elijah. Uh, Philippians 4, 9, you don't have to turn here, says the things that you have learned and received and seen of me, it tells us to practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, Paul was pushing replication from the scriptures over and over again. So it's important that discipleship doesn't just become friendship, but that you replicate and that you start to mimic and look more like Jesus Christ. And so that's what we did last week. And this week I want to talk, which we haven't talked about yet, which is mutual discipleship, mutual discipleship. So if you could uh, pick me up in verse number nine, Ecclesiastes four will be nine through 12 today. It says this, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe unto him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, threefold cord is not quickly broken. I want to preach today from a topic entitled mutual discipleship, mutual discipleship. But I want to use today as a subtopic, really lifting up the first five words of verse number nine, two are better than one. So mutual discipleship, two are better than one. Let us pray this morning. Uh, Father, as we come before you, um, slowing ourselves down, slowing the service down, so that we can get in your word. Uh, Psalms 119, 105 is on our minds. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we get together this morning praying that you would illuminate the dark areas of our path, illuminate the dark areas of our life. We thank you that your word is, has the ability to, uh, to correct, to reprove, to rebuke, but also to encourage. And Father, we pray that both of those would happen today, correction and encouragement. Pray that Jesus Christ, even from the book of Ecclesiastes, Jesus Christ would be seen and proclaimed in a, uh, in a clear and a bold way. And so, Father, we trust your word, realizing that it is the only hope we have uh, because it points us to the only hope, which is Jesus Christ. So it is 
for your glory and your honor that we come before you and also for the fame and the, and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Let us all say amen. amen. Mutual discipleship. Two are better than one. Emperor Frederick II, who ruled the Roman Empire in the 13th century, wanted to know what man's original language was. What was the original language of man? Was it Latin? Was it Greek? Was it Hebrew? And so what he did was he set out to do an experiment. And the experiment was called the language deprivation experiment. If you've never heard of this experiment, it also has a, another name. It's called the forbidden experiment. And the reason it's called the forbidden experiment is because of what you'll find out at the conclusion of me telling you what this experiment was. Frederick II, Emperor Frederick II, he took some infants and he said, man, we're going to find out what the original language of these infants is by not letting them hear a, a single word, not a sound. And so he got these wet nurses to come in and he swore them to silence, that they would come in and they would feed these, true story, they would feed these babies, these infants, and not say a word to them. And what he concluded was that they will automatically originally grow up and speak man's original language. And so when he did that, he did it for months. And then after a few months of him doing this, all of the infants died. Every, that's why it's called the forbidden experiment. All of the infants died. And what we can conclude from this experiment is that we were not created to live life in isolation. We were not created to live individualistic lives to where we're not in relationship with one another. There's a Jewish proverb that says a man without a companion is like a left hand without a right hand. It's like imagine washing your hands if you only have one hand. It's tough to do. Now, you can do it. People go through life and they thrive with just one arm or one hand, but they'll tell you it is more difficult to do. So I'm not saying you can't go through life by yourself. What I'm saying is, especially in the Christian walk, it is very hard to continue to grow to look more like Jesus all by yourself. But culture pushes against this, right? Culture pushes against this. They push individualism. They push isolation. And it typically, show, typically shows up in the idioms that we choose to say, we say things like too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the stew. In other words, what we're saying is do it by yourself. You'll go farther if you do it all by yourself. I've been watching um, BET's uh, uh, new edition series. I don't know how many of y'all have been watching that. But think about how many of them tried to go solo. I'm trying to go solo. And many of them, I don't know why Ralph Trespant went solo, but whatever. <laughs> Like, come on, let's be honest. Johnny Gill was the man. Bobby Brown was the man. I don't know what happened with Ralph. He was better with the group. Point I'm making is when it comes to the Christian walk and it, and it comes to the Christian life, you are not supposed to live life in isolation. And most of us do that because we don't want anybody in our business. And you guys have heard me say it over and over again. The Christian needs people in their business. We do not need, like, we, we're not the ones that can just live. We, you can be an introvert, but at some point, you got to open your life up and become transparent with somebody else. And so I want to debunk, in our time today, I want to debunk this individualistic idea and really try to push us not just to life with other believers, but I want to push us in our time to think, what would it look like for me to be in a mutual discipleship relationship? Now, you'll notice something important about the book that we're in. The book of Ecclesiastes comes directly after the book of Proverbs. And many will say that the book of Ecclesiastes is a sad sequel to the book of Proverbs. The reason it's a sad sequel or known as a sad sequel is because Proverbs was primary. It consists primarily of wise sayings 
from King Solomon to his children. But the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon laments for failing to take and heed to his own advice. So that's why it's considered a sad sequel. And in our book and in our text today, what we're going to see is warnings not to waste our lives on temporary things. But we're going to see how important it is for us to be in a mutual discipleship relationship over your personal comfort. Let's be honest. It's easy for us to say, I just don't want to be around people. I want to be alone today. But even with that, it's not healthy. So what, what you'll see in our verses today, we're in verses 9 through 12. But if you go back a couple of verses, and I'm not going to do it in our time today, but if you go back on your time and read verses 7 through 8, what you'll see is that Solomon warns us against isolation, and he calls it vanity. And then if you go down to verses 13 to 16, what you'll see is him warning us of superficial fame. He also calls this vanity. And so sandwiched in between these two extremes is our text today. And Paul pushes the idea that two are better than one. Proverbs 18:1 says, whoever isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. And that person seeks his own desires. That's Proverbs 18:1. You guys have heard me quote that over and over again. The Bible often pushes against this idea of individualism. In fact, the Bible will call it selfish. It's foolish. And I'll go so far uh, being bold in the text today to say it's unbiblical. For you to say, I trust Jesus, but I want to be alone. I trust Jesus, but I don't want anybody in my business. I trust Jesus, but I'm going to stay home today. I don't want to be a part of the community. The scripture says, no, two are better than one. And it pushes this idea. And so in creation, when God created everything, everything he created, he said was good. Except for when you get to chapter 2, verse 18. First thing he said was not good was for us to be alone. It's the first thing he said. And the reason he says this is because... He knows, left up to ourselves, we don't make the right decisions. And so in our text today, Solomon is going to really give us four reasons why two are better than one. And I'd like for you to write these down. All four reasons, here they are. Two are better than one when you work. We're going to see that. We're going to see that two are better than one when you fall down. Two are better than one when you're in the cold. And then we're going to see that two are better than one when you are in a fight. Let us consider the passage together. First, two are better than one when you work. Look at verse number nine. Verse number nine says, two are better than one because they have a good reward. Circle this phrase or this word for their toil. The word here, toil here speaks of hard work and diligent labor. This is not the picture of a person sitting in a cubicle, goofing off, wasting time, not doing anything, playing Minecraft pocket edition. This is not a guy that's doing nothing. When you speak of toil in the scripture, what it's speaking of is a person that is hard at work. And really what you see here is a person that's working in a field, because remember, this is an agrarian culture. And so if you didn't work, you didn't eat. If you didn't work, your family didn't. So you didn't in the back in the day, you didn't need to push a farmer to work. You didn't need to probe a farmer to go to work. A farmer went to work because if he didn't work the next season, his entire family would starve. When I set out to raise support for my two year residency before we planted the church to be trained in church planning, I had to raise my own support, and I've never done that before. And my pastor at that time, Dr. Mason, pulled, he said, pull out your phone, and I need you to pull up a picture of your family. 
I have no clue what I'm doing. So I pull up my phone. I pull up a picture of my family. He's like, stare at it. In my mind, I'm like, this is getting real weird. But he's like, stare at the picture. And then he says, if you don't raise your support, they don't eat. So in other words, what he was doing was he was motivating me to work by knowing that if I didn't get at it at working and raising support and really working hard at it, then my family wouldn't eat. That is exactly what it was like. But the assumption of the text is that we all would work. And so what you see is, is that hard work is not a punishment because of the fall. Hard work is not some response that God gave because Adam and Eve fell. In fact, Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God took the man, put him into the garden and said, work it and, and keep it. And so this happened. So in other words, work isn't some type of man Adam and Eve messed up. That's childbearing. Yeah, you're going to work to the sweat of your brow. But nevertheless, God said to work hard work. And so hard work is unavoidable. It is inescapable. All of us in this room must work. The late novelist Alex Haley in his office had a picture of a turtle sitting on a fence. And the turtle sitting on the fence really represented the person that really gets, on, gets to a successful place by the help of others. Because when people would come in his office and they would say, what is this, what is this turtle sitting on the fence mean? And what he would say is, if you ever see a turtle sitting on the fence, you know it had the help of somebody else to get up there. And so whenever he would get by himself and he would start to feel himself and start to think that because he was a successful person, whenever he would start to feel like he was marvelous, he would look at that picture and remember, he got where he got because of the help of somebody else. And anybody successful will tell you their success normally doesn't come from their personal grind. Their success normally comes from the help of others. And so Solomon declares in our text, listen, two are better than one when you toil. When you go to work, two are better than one. But let me pastorally give you some advice. And the advice is don't overwork either because the scripture does teach balance. Think about the Ten Commandments. The longest commandment out of all the commandments was not thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal. Those are one-liners. The longest commandment was on rest. And what we do is, many of you, especially in New York, I just work and work and work and don't rest. That is just as dangerous as not working. So the text proves to us that we need to be balanced. But let me also give you advice of not working, when it says work with at least two or more, let me also give you the advice of being careful who you work with. And not only being careful who you work with, but being careful that you're not working on things that are contrary to the will of God. Because that's what we'll do. We'll grind with somebody else, but we'll grind on our personal grind without actually consulting the Lord to see if it's what the Lord says. In Genesis 11, they did this. When they wanted to build the Tower of, of Babel, they tried to build this tall skyscraper and they were unified in doing it, the scripture says. And so they were working together. So they could look at Ecclesiastes and say, we work together, but they were working together in opposition to the will of God to where God had to come down and mess them up. But even in that, we get a a good principle of working. Why? Because in verse number six, God says that nothing that they would do would be impossible to, to them because they work together. And so in other words, what I'm saying is if the wrong plan can accomplish a lot, what can we do accomplishing the will of God working together? 
That's what the scripture is telling us today. It's telling us two are better than one. If this farmer does not work, he does not eat. But next Solomon is going to show us in verse number, number 10 that two are better than one when you fall down. Let us look at the scripture together. Verse number 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe unto him who is alone when he falls and not, has not another to lift him up. Verse 10 addresses the common theme between everybody in this room. If you've walked in here, if you were able to walk, if you're able to put one foot in front of the other, it's a possibility that you might fall. Just because you walk, you're a candidate for being able to fall. And many of us in here think, no way, I would never fall. Now, you would think Solomon would be more emphatic in this statement. You would think he would say when they fall, because all of us in this room have fell before. But he doesn't say when they fall. He says if they fall. And, and he's, he's speaking of this as a possible scenario. And that doesn't dilute the power of the text. The truth of the matter is everybody in this room might fall. I don't care how experienced you are in walking. I don't care if you've been walking all your life. I don't care how careful you are in walking. All of us in this room have a possibility of being able to fall. Let me read this verse to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 12. It warns us. It says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed unless he falls. And so in other words, the person that thinks that they're standing is actually the person that may fall. But the person that leans deeply on the Lord is the person that can bypass this fall. And so what verse 10 is saying is during life's journey, you might stumble. You might fall. In fact, this isn't even stumbling. You know why it's not stumbling? Because the verse says that woe unto you who falls and has nobody to lift him up. And so in other words, you could fall so hard that you can't get up by yourself. You can fall so hard and so low that you will need the help of other people to lift you up. But let me also point us that this isn't just talking about a physical fall. This is talking about a spiritual fall. A spiritual fall. Galatians 6.1 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore that person in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. All of us, the most spiritually mature person in here has the ability, if they're not careful, if they don't have accountability to fall into sin. And the scripture is saying to us today, woe unto you who falls and has nobody around. Woe unto you who spiritually falls and doesn't have somebody else to, as Galatians says, restore you. And even in the restoration, Paul tells us who should restore us in Galatians 6. You who are spiritual. In other words, then let me push that to you because everybody in the Galatian church wasn't spiritual or else Paul wouldn't have said that. What, can I, what am I trying to say that you have to be careful in mutual discipleship, not connecting to discipleship with people that are carnal. With people that really don't want the things of God, they just want friendship. And can I be honest? I don't have the time to, to just be mere friends with people. I need somebody that's going to call me out on sin. I need somebody that's going to be in my business. We don't have time for anything else. You need people in your life that's going to check you on your Facebook post. We need people in our life that's going to call us out. We need a 
brothers in our life that's going to say, let me see your phone because I want to I want to see the websites you've been going to. We need sisters in our life that will say, listen, you went to his house by yourself and stayed the night. What's up with that? We need people in our business. We don't need just mere friendships. Listen, I got too many friends. I need mutual discipleship. I need somebody that's going to challenge me. I need somebody that's going to check in me because most of us fall not because sin is so strong, We fall because we don't got somebody on on our side telling us you can do it. You can make it. Calling us out. You need that one friend in your life that will talk reckless to you, not care that you have an attitude. I'm serious. You need that person that will just tell you like it is. When it comes to sin, we have no time for isolation. We have no time for individualism. What we need is accountability. But look at something else in the text that's important. Look at the language of the text. Verse number 10, for if they fall, one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Look at this. But woe unto him. Woe unto him. This is prophetic terminology here. Like I thought that the book of Ecclesiastes was poetic until I got to verse number 10. And saw that he says, woe unto him. Anytime in the scripture God wants to bless his people, he says, blessed is the man. But anytime he wants to pronounce a curse over somebody, he says, woe unto him. So this is prophetic terminology. And what what Solomon is doing here is he's putting the emphasis by using prophetic terminology. He's putting the emphasis on how important spiritual relationships are. Too many people around us that aren't serious enough about the scriptures, about your personal walk and about your personal growth. And my generation, what we do is we want to walk alone, but when we fall, we complain that the church isn't there for us. But you've been isolated the whole time. Like we, I don't get that. The, the first question, I ask two questions when people come to me and, and maybe not sin, but they say they fall on hard times or they need help. There's two questions I always ask. First question is, who are you, who are you in DNA with? I want to know who you're in relationship with. Why? Because we read Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual. So in other words, Galatians 6.1 didn't say the church should help you out. Your spiritual DNA partner, your mutual discipleship partner should be able to restore you and to help you. The second question I ask is, what small group are you in? Because this thing works best through relationship. It always works best that way. Of course, the church is supposed to come along if there's serious help, but sin, when it comes to sin or hard times, you need somebody in your life. The third thing that we pick up in the, in the text is that two are better than one. When you're in the cold, look at the text, verse number 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? If the picture in verse number 10 was addressing the dangers of falling, the picture in verse number 11 is addressing the dangers of freezing. Look at the text. I'm going to read it again. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, Bible readers normally apply this verse to marriage. I've heard this verse at many weddings before, but You don't see anywhere in this passage, nor anywhere in this entire chapter, where Solomon is addressing marriage. So this verse isn't, yes, it's applicable, 
Yes, it makes sense, but this verse is not talking about marriage. It is giving us the picture of a traveler on the road. And as he travels on the road and nights, the sun starts to go down and night starts to come and the road gets cold, he needs someone else there with him. The, end, the closest end may be too far. And if he does get to the end, he might get there and there's no room. And so he has to sleep outside with the elements. And what the scripture is saying is that two are better than one when you're cold. Don't, it doesn't matter that you got a tunic. It doesn't matter that you got a cloak. It doesn't have, matter how many layers you have on. All of us, the text is leaning less towards freezing and talking more towards survival. In other words, there are, peop, there are times in your life where you literally need somebody else to survive. I used to watch this show on National Geographic called I Should Be Dead. Anybody ever seen that show? It's called I Should Be Dead. And there's these people in these extreme circumstances and they were left like in, in the heat in the desert with no water and they made it out and they would tell their story and this I Should Be Dead would reenact the whole scene. And there was this one episode where these two men were hiking and when they were hiking, they wandered off of the trail and got lost and night came and it was freezing cold outside and they didn't have enough clothes. They didn't have anything warm to drink in order to stay warm. So what they did was they huddled up next to each other to exchange body heat. That is what our text is talking about. When it gets cold outside and life does get cold for you, when it gets cold, you need someone else, not just to stay warm, but to survive. To survive through spiritual elements like freezing cold. You need someone else when it comes to the survival. And there are times in your life, there are things in your life you cannot overcome by yourself. There are habits in your life that you cannot break by yourself. And let's not get it twisted and act like, well, I don't have any habits. Listen, I'm not, I'm not crazy. Some of you in here are addicted to things that you wouldn't tell anybody you're addicted to. Some of you are addicted to social media. Some of you are addicted to porn. Some of you are addicted to alcohol. Some of you are addicted to weed. But the truth is you need somebody else. When you're not able to survive and break the habit by yourself, you need somebody else. So not just somebody else, but you need somebody else spiritual in your life. How in the world can one keep warm alone? AKA, how can you survive life's element? The last one that we need to work through in verse number 12, and I think is important, is two are better than one when you're in a fight. Let's look at verse number 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Again, this is a picture of a guy on a road, on a journey. And if he's by himself, he can fall amongst a thief or a robber or someone violent and he can overtake him. The text is saying when you have two people, he, it's not, he can't easily take you over because you have someone else. And some of you in here right now, let's be honest, are in a fight right now. Maybe there's an attack against friends or family members, or maybe it's a spiritual fight. And let's be honest, the, the most dangerous fight you can be in is not a physical fight. The most dangerous one is a spiritual one. When I was in junior high, I was in seventh grade, and I was in gym, and I was arguing with this guy, and we were having like a really, really tough argument, but I thought it was just merely words until we got to the locker room. 
And we get in the locker room and the guy's like, oh, I want, I want to fight. And I'm, in my mind, I'm like, well, I thought we was just arguing. And I didn't want to be punked in front, of, in front of everybody. So I was getting ready to fight this dude until he took off his shirt. And he had like cuts and veins. I'm like, bro, we in the seventh grade. What? Like, where you get those muscles from? I was way underdeveloped. You know, I got guns now, but I didn't have them back then. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy wants to fight? So I didn't, again, I didn't want to be punked, but in my heart, I was fearful until my boys stood up. My boys was like, yo, what, what's the problem? And he was alone, and he quickly backed down. You know, in that moment, I wanted to act like I was bold. Like, <laughs> the truth is, I was scared, but I had my boys with me. And so he backed down, not because I took off my shirt. He backed down because I had other people with me. And that is what the scripture is telling us. And what you need when it comes to fighting is you need someone, especially spiritual fighting. You know who your greatest enemy is? Your greatest enemy is not the person that's hating on you. Your greatest enemy is not the person that you've been arguing with. Your greatest enemy is not your family member who you've been arguing with. Your greatest enemy is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. It says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, here it is, the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers in this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Your biggest enemy is Satan and his demonic influences. That's your biggest enemy. And if that's our biggest enemy, which never takes a break from fighting you, if that is your biggest enemy, you need spiritual people around you that will be in the fight with you. Again, don't just look at this as something that is merely a physical fight, but this is a spiritual fight. And like I said before, you'll need someone who fight with you because there are some things that you can't do by yourself. Again, there's habits you can't break. There's enemies you can't beat. Okay, how spiritually mature you think you are. There are enemies, there are demons, dem demons, demonic influences that you cannot beat. What we need and what we need most is a friend, someone that's, that, someone that's with us, someone that, will, that can be, you can be honest and say, man, I've been, I've been struggling with looking at these porn sites. Someone who you can be honest with that will walk with you. That will get, there's a software called Covenant Eyes that will get it and be able to look at everything you're looking at on their phone. See, we don't like that type. That's too much for us. Like, we don't like people in our business that much. You're going to look at every site I ever look at? Yeah. And I'm going to know what times you were on it. That's what we need. We need people deeply, deeply in our businesses. So over and over and over and over and over again, what we see in the scriptures is two are better than one. Over and over again, this is mutual discipleship. But the last line of verse number 12 intensifies this mutual discipleship. Look at verse number 12. I'm going to read it all. And though a man might prevail against one who was alone, two will withstand him. Here it is. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So over and over again, what we saw in the scriptures was two are better than one. You get to chapter 12 and he's saying three is even better. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Again, we take this and we use it for weddings and marriages, but this is about relationships. This is about friendships. And so, yes, one can hold some weight. Two can hold more weight. But when three are involved, the Bible says 
that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Vance Hevner used to say that a snowflake is a frail little thing, but if you get enough of them together, they'll stop traffic. Like you ever had a snowflake fall in your hand and like it melts like that? But you get enough of them together, it'll shut the city down. And that's what we need. We need people. We need a squad, and a spiritual squad that will hold us down when we're weak. That's what all of us need. And here's the truth. A threefold cord may not mean three individuals. It could be you, another individual, and Jesus. In fact, that's the best threefold cord. If you're walking through mutual discipleship with somebody else, a mutual relationship where you're both sharpening one another, sometimes there comes a point, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, there comes a point where you guys can't even sharpen each other. You need Jesus to sharpen both of you. And we see this in Luke 24. Remember the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus? And they're walking along the road. They're depressed because Jesus just died and they thought that his body was stolen. So they were depressed. The Bible says Jesus, they didn't know it, but Jesus got on the road and started walking with them. And when he was walking with them, he began to talk to them about the scriptures. They finally get back to Emmaus. They invite him into the house and they discover that is Jesus. And then he vanishes. And then those two disciples go to Jerusalem And they say something so profound. They say, did not our hearts burn within when he opened to us the scriptures? Meaning they were cold, both of them. So sometimes in discipleship, you both will go cold, but a threefold cord, you got Jesus connected to you, your heart should start to burn within. Now at the risk of contradicting everything else that I just said about about two are better than one, At the risk of contradicting my entire sermon, there is one occasion, one occasion where one is better than two. Only one occasion. You know what that one occasion is? When it comes to faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need two gods. You don't need two saviors. We have one. And he is our all-sufficient prophet. He's our all-sufficient priest. He's our all-sufficient king. He's our all-sufficient Savior. So when it comes to Jesus, you don't need to. There's a, it's reported that Elvis Presley used to wear a cross. He used to wear the Star of David and other religious medals. And people came up to him and often used to say, why do you wear so many different religions around your neck? And he would say, because I don't want to miss out on heaven because of a technicality. In other words, what is this true story? In other words, what he was saying was, I want to cover all bases. But here's the important thing to know. The Christian doesn't have to cover all bases. We trust Jesus who's covered all bases. We put our faith not in two. We don't put our faith in three, but we put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why John 14, 6 says, I, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see the exclusive nature of Jesus? Jesus does not sit amongst the ranks of other saviors. He is the only savior. He is the intersection between heaven and the intersection between earth. And so if you're struggling, forget mutual discipleship. If you're struggling with salvation, there is only one that you should trust in today. Don't don't trust in the advice of your friends. Don't trust in other saviors. 
let me go so far as to say, don't trust in your own works. I don't care how good you think you are. When you stand before the Lord, he will not, out, he will not weigh your good and your bad. That's what we do. We take this religious scale and we say, as long as I do enough good and I, the bad is down here, he'll forgive this. He'll forgive this and he'll just look at this. But the truth is he won't forgive any of it. He forgives sin by placing it on Jesus. So he's exclusive. Let every head bow and every, every heart close for a second. As we consider what mutual discipleship is, there may be one in here that has not trusted Jesus. There may be somebody in here who is walking through life. And as you hear me talking about mutual discipleship, mutual discipleship for you is impossible because you aren't a disciple of Jesus. You haven't trusted in him. And that relationship, as we talk about mutual relationships, that relationship is the most important relationship. Because friends can forsake you. Friends can do you wrong. But Jesus will never forsake you. And if you have not trusted in him, you should give your life to him. Not tomorrow, not tonight, but right now. Why? Because if you don't, the same wrath that was kindled against Jesus on the cross for accepting your sin, you still have to pay for. This is not scare tactics because scare tactics don't get us into heaven. This is trust in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is our only hope. He's your meal ticket. He's the only hope we have to get to the Father. And so I don't, I, don't, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've walked in here with. But I do know that if Jesus isn't a part of your life, you are deeply missing out on the one that brings all the fulfillment. If you haven't trusted Jesus today, today would be a good day to get that right. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you haven't trust Jesus, why don't you slip your hand in the air? Nothing spooky. Nothing mystical. But why don't you give your life to Jesus today? If you don't know him. The second call I, I really want to, I want to make and put before you today is if you're walking through life in isolation and you're worshiping individualism, why don't you slip your hand in the air? If you are honest and say, I don't want people spiritually in my business, why don't you go ahead and slip that hand in the air? If you know you're walking by yourself, no one's discipling you. You're not walking with anybody else. You're just by yourself. I see that hand. Why don't you slip it? I see that hand. Put it in the air. Because what we do is we think we can figure this thing out by ourselves. Hear me. You're not strong enough to do it by yourself. You're not smart enough to do it by yourself. You're not bold and wise enough to do it by yourself. You need somebody else. I see those hands. 
if you were, would be so bold as to come down front, I just simply want to pray with you. If you raised your hand and said, I'm walking in isolation, there is nobody else walking with me. Why don't you come down front so I can pray for you? Those who raise their hand, you should come down. Thank you for your boldness. Thank you for your boldness. Thank you for your boldness. There's more of you sitting in your seat that think, I have friends. I got people I talk to. But is there anybody spiritual in your life that's challenging you, that's pushing you? I don't care if you're in college. I don't care if you're, you have your degree and you're working a job. Are you isolated from the community? Are you isolated from other believers? Do you hide your sin so that nobody else knows it? You should come down today. I'll give it another second. Father, I thank you for these that are on the altar that were bold enough. Those of you who are in your seats, point your hands this way. The ones that are bold enough to say, I walk in isolation. That doesn't mean I haven't trusted Jesus. That doesn't, it just means I value my own personal walk. With, before getting in relationship with people, I want to be isolated. And they recognize, Lord, those that are on this altar recognize that it is through community that spiritual victory happens. It is through community that we overcome sin. It is through community that we grow to look more like Jesus. It is never in isolation, but it is through being in relationship with others. Father, I pray that you would put, surround these that are on the altar with godly people. Surround them with people that trust you and know you, that can sharpen them. But also, let them realize that they have something to contribute, that they can sharpen others as well. Surround them with relationships that are kingdom-minded, relationships that are spiritually sharpening for them. Iron does sharpen iron. Sometimes we need the help of others. When we're ready to quit, we need somebody else that pushes us. When we're ready to give up, we need somebody else that pushes us. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless these on the altar with those fruitful relationships. You never designed this thing for us to live in isolation, but you've, you've wired this thing that we would grow with others. And so would you bless these brothers, bless this sister with those relationships. It is for your glory that we want to do this. So bless them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can we thank God for these bold people that came down? You may have your seat.